0: Hello and welcome back to the Backroom Ballads. Today is the mini-series finale of the 1954 stories. The last story from that year is called Changes, which details the differences between the era that these stories take place compared to what it's like today. Let's get right into it. In March 1954, when I was sworn into the NYPD, I was a high school dropout who had married a girl who fulfilled my life. When we had a little girl, I became highly motivated to make good. I believe that after my academy class was sworn in, next class had to have a high school diploma and years later several years of college was required. I was in the job for 15 years when I started my formal education by getting a high school equivalency diploma by going at night and then enrolling in four college level classes, joining them so much that I knew I was a candidate for a degree. My goal at that time was to maximize my potential for the future. slowly it came to me that I wanted my children to be able to talk about me honestly with their friends and classmates without needing to lie, as I had to do when I was a kid. My father provided no model to copy, nothing to imitate or to be proud of, so all of us children made excuses for him, lying constantly to hide the truth. I wanted better than that for my children, and my going to college enhanced my future and gave my family a true life story that they could copy and be proud of. In 1954, the NYPD Academy was at 7 Hubert Street in Manhattan, not far from where the Twin Towers were later built. It was a very old building, nothing at all like the new police academy on 20th Street. Three of my instructors were lieutenants. One of them later became a police commissioner, another became a chief inspector, and the last one became an inspector and retired after a fight with one of the other two. In 1954, the police commissioner was Francis Adams, who had been a lawyer with a good reputation. Like most others, Commissioner Adams would learn that there are a few opportunities to make sweeping changes in the department, and all changes take place in one-inch increments. Like John F. Kennedy, who said he was shocked how little the president could get done, police commissioners throughout the history of the NYPD have had to settle for only a little change or no change at all. At least it was that way until Patrick V. Murphy was made police commissioner. Commissioner Murphy changed a lot of systemic malfunctions and got to the heart of police corruption by telling the upper ranks that a new day had come. One in which the upper ranks would be disciplined along with the lower ranks for corrupt activities. Up to that time, it was always the cops, some sergeants, and rarely a lieutenant who took the fall for getting caught in unlawful protection practices. But Patrick Murphy made it known that the same rules that are on the bottom were meant to be enforced at the top as well, and he meant it. His reforms were deep and wide because that was the extent of the age-old games the police played. Unlike other police commissioners, Pat Murphy took every opportunity to make changes. One day I was going to the corner candy store to get a soda, and I asked if anyone wanted me to bring anything back. This lieutenant was with me, but we rarely spoke. He said to me in a whisper, here's a buck, get me four Philly cigars, but don't show Abe the money. Tell him it's for Lieutenant Murray. I did him a favor once, so he knows me and may not charge you. Is that clear? I mean, do you understand what you have to do? I was embarrassed. I was in my recruit gray uniform, and I knew it was wrong, but I was between the rock and the hard place. I didn't know how to say no or excuse myself. After all, Lieutenant Murray may be annoyed if I confronted him with a refusal to do as he asked. So I went down to the corner store and brought the cigars back with the dollar bill folded small and handed it to Lieutenant Murray, saying, Abe sends his regards, Lieutenant. You're going to do just fine, kid, he replied. After getting his cigars three or four more times, I no longer announced I was going down to Abe's candy store, so Murray must ask another recruit to get them. Many years later, when Murray finally was promoted to Chief Inspector, I still had no respect for him since he had introduced me to police corruption for his lousy cigars. He became a heavy drinker, along the way maybe because he could get the booze for nothing. He died at 59 years of age. I went to his funeral mass and sitting there I condemned myself for not confronting him in the academy and saying no to his cigar scheme. In 1969, I was at level one meetings in old police headquarters on Center Street where Commissioner Murphy started down on the executive corps of 40 top police commanders in the NWPD and explained to them that he would break and force out of the job any executive who was involved with the corrupt activity. They all knew that their ranks were no sense secure under civil service, and they could be reduced in rank to captain, losing a pension differential of thousands of dollars. Then Pat Murphy met with level 2 commanders, who were captains and deputy inspectors, and told them that they would be busted, lose their commands, they didn't clean their shops, and eliminate corruption. And one day, Commissioner Patrick V. Murphy put all ranks from top to bottom on notice that the games were over, and it was better to do the right thing than to be corrupt cops. The vast differences between the 1954 NYPD and the same department in 1970 were hard to comprehend. It was so new, and the changes were so complete, that those who played the old games under the new rules lost their jobs, and rightly so. Pat Murphy meant business because he had been told by the governor that there was a lot of talk in Albany about the NYPD needing an overseer agency to control the endemic corruption that raised its ugly head every 15 or 20 years. If an overseer agency was approved and appointed, it would mean the NYPD was owned by that agency, not the police commissioner and his executive corps. The possibility of an overseer agency was a crisis, and there were many of them during his tenure. Back then, in 1954, in one of my recruit classes, a clergyman came into the room, gave the ethics course. Twitching nervously, he said, if you're not married, get married and stay married. That was the extent of the ethics course. Then an old PBA delegate, who was also an obvious bottle baby, came into the room to give us some advice about corruption on the street. He held onto the desk so he wouldn't fall and said, two things that can save your job. One, never go back, and two, don't take checks. Then he staggered out of the room and was gone. Since that time was almost 50 years ago, police training has improved tremendously with increased emphasis on ethnics and relations as well as in-depth discussions on ethnic, cultural, and religious diversity. How effective any training remains to be seen on the street. Three weeks into my recruit training, I was asked to join an acting group who practice short plays to deliver in front of the recruits to reinforce visually what we were then learning from the textbooks. I accepted and took the roles of both Harry Hophead and police officer Reveretti, two main characters in two different plays. The lieutenant who directed the shows was a nice guy, made me welcome, and gave me some tips on to better play my roles. Along with many social changes that were everywhere in the 1960s, nomenclature of the NYPD changed too. The phrase police force was changed to police service in all department publications. Suddenly department merit citations were not given only for bravery but also for solving problems and for a change that came from good, solid thinking. Back then, I was in the middle of all the action, seeing at the both the bottom and at the top, which was a rare and unique experience for someone in my rank. I remembered back in 1954 that I wanted to be a good cop, and knew through the years that something drastic had to happen before we would voluntarily change. We were in the police room, and everyone else was out of it. Change is hard to plan, hard to make happen, hard to accept, but it's nonetheless constant. Either you become part of it, or it goes right over you like a steamroller, leaving you behind and unable to be part of tomorrow. It's not just one event, or one opportunity, or one order. There's a series of them, glomeration of hopes, dreams, and actions, and intense determination for the first time that fulfilled the destiny of the NYPD and all of us who were in it. I was one of the prime movers in changing the police departments throughout the nation into more professional policing arms of government. I know rank or education tell me when I first started my pilgrimage for ethnic old commitment. Just a powerful, undying hope that all the fine men I would know would fulfill their oath and vows and be more loved and respected by their families. Thank you for listening to this finale of The Bowls of 1954 Changes. Sorry that it was a bit of a shorter episode. That's because next week, there will be no stories, and rather, the Backroom Ballads Holiday Special. So stay tuned to that when that drops either Thursday or Christmas Eve. As usual, this episode was edited by my friend Parsh, and the theme song is New York by You 2 Anyway, we hope to see you back here next week for the Holiday Special from the Backroom Ballads.